That's what we would like to do this morning. We would like to retrace this history, Luke's uh, very, very accurate history of the story of the birth of our Lord, and then ponder its, its meaning for us. Let me, uh, let me read the story. It's uh, fairly long, but I think we need to uh, call it all to our, uh, to our minds. Luke 2, verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in strips of cloth and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in strips of cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Now, you will know this, uh, this event was not an afterthought. It was predicted long before, uh, before it occurred. Uh, Micah, uh, a prophet who was contemporaneous with Isaiah, the prophet that we've uh, lately been studying, predicted the place of Jesus' birth and the place where the angel came. Uh, delivered the message to the, uh, uh, to, the, to the shepherds. Micah predicted that our Lord would come to Bethlehem, though it was smallest of all the clans of, of Israel. It would become uh, famous, one of the greatest, because it was there that the Lord of glory would be born. And in the chapter that uh, precedes chapter 4 of Micah, Micah predicted that, uh, that the outcasts of Israel... The pariahs, those that were uh, exiled and overlooked and had no access to uh, uh, to the temple, would uh, they would find the one they were looking for at Migdal Eder? Migdal Eder was a, a little uh, city, a little community, just to the north of Bethlehem, and traditionally has been located as the field of the shepherds, where the angels appeared to the shepherds. So, seven hundred years before this event took place, our Lord. Uh, had predicted that it would happen. And it did, in fact, happen. This is not a myth. 
these are historical facts. Luke was a very, very accurate historian. He tells us in the introduction to this book that uh, he had carefully uh, analyzed all the facts and he'd interviewed numerous people and, and what he uh, wrote uh, was truth. It was, it was history. He wrote to a man by the name of Theophilus. We have no idea who he was. I have uh, had a friend in seminary who uh, decided to call his uh, little boy Theophilus. Uh, he was uh, at, the, at the birth of the child, and when, when the child was born and wrapped in a blanket and placed in his lap, he looked down at the little red wrinkled face, and he said, That's the Theophilus-looking kid I ever saw. But uh, <clears throat> fortunately, the name didn't stick. Uh, now, Theophilus was a, uh, was a Roman dignitary. There's some thought that he was the attorney that represented Paul in his case before Nero, or he may have been a highly placed Roman official to whom Luke wrote this official Christian apology, that is, defense of, of the faith. But uh, what Luke did is carefully examine all the facts, and he put down what actually happened. He tells us that uh, it happened during the, during the time of, of Caesar, Augustus. We know when Caesar reigned, he was the first emperor, uh, the first real emperor of the Roman Empire, who came to the throne after the chaos that, that followed uh, Julius Caesar's death. Uh, we're told that uh, it happened the, during the time of Quirinius. Uh, he was an actual governor, just as Cecil Andrus is, is the governor of, of our state. Uh, there's always been some question in the minds of skeptics about this man because it appears from history that he, uh, that he was governor much later than the events that Luke describes. But uh, back in the 1930s, a man by the name of William Ramsey very well-known archaeologist, was digging in Ankara, Turkey, and he discovered a, a monument. And inscribed on this monument was a tribute uh, to this man that's known as Quirinius in, in the Gospel of Luke. And it mentions that he, uh, he held that office of governor on two different occasions. And so Luke, again, establishes the uh, accuracy of his account. And he tells us that, that during the reign of Quirinius, about uh, 5 B.C., as far as we're able to tell, this uh, census was issued. It was actually uh, first uh, issued about five years before, but the Jews fought it in the courts for four years. Uh, the purpose of the, of the census was uh, to number the members, the families, so that they could be taxed, and it was an onerous sort of thing to the Jews, and they fought it uh, in the courts for several years until finally... Uh, they lost the case, and, and the census was taken. And uh, this uh, young couple, Joseph and Mary, had to make their way 75 miles from Nazareth down to, down to Bethlehem. Here's another case where a, uh, an unjust authority uh, uh, worked the righteousness of God. This is one of the reasons why the Scriptures tell us to submit to unjust authority, because we never know what good can come from it. And in this case, the good was the salvation of the, of the world. God saw to it that uh, his son was born in the right place at the right time as a result of this, uh, actually a very unfair practice on the part of, of the Romans. So 
Mary and Joseph had to pack up all of their belongings and, and on foot or on donkey back. Uh, Mary, who was near term, had to travel this distance, 75 miles, over these rugged mountain roads between Nazareth and, and Bethlehem until she arrived at the place where our Lord uh, was to be born. You know the story of the inn? Uh, there was no room there, and so they uh, crept into a, into a cave. Some of you may have seen the story in the Reader's Digest that uh, tickled my funny bone about the little boy who tried out for the part of Joseph in the, in the school play, and he didn't get the part. He got the part of the innkeeper, and he decided to take vengeance on the, uh, on the uh, little boy who did get the part of Joseph. And when, uh, on the night of the play, when Joseph knocked at the door of the inn, and asked if there was any room, the little boy who lost the part of Joseph and who was playing the part of the innkeeper said, Oh, yes, we have lots of room. Uh, but uh, the other little boy was faster on his feet, and he stuck his head in the door and looked around, and he said, Mary, this place is a dump. Let's go find a cave. And uh, as a matter of fact, inns were dumps back in those days. They were terrible, wretched places where there was a great deal of immorality and they were filthy. And, and in, some, in some sense, a cave might even be a nicer uh, place uh, to stay. It was indeed a cave, not a, not a barn as we know it. If you go to, to uh, Bethlehem today and you go to the Church of the Nativity, they'll show you the, the sites down underneath the floor. You have to get out on your hands and knees and look through it small hole, but down in that opening is the cave that traditionally was is located as the place where our Lord was born, just a crevice in the rock into which uh, peasant farmers in those days drove their, uh, their animals for protection, and it was there in that spot that our Lord was born. Mary gave birth to the Lord Jesus, wrapped him in strips of cloth, and placed him in a feed trough. And in that cave, God literally undermined the world. Uh, That little manger was the center of the universe. And uh, the center was about that that big. It it seemed like such an inconsequential act, uh, such an inconsequential happening in history. But that place became the center of the universe. That's where demons and angels gathered angels to worship, demons to try to destroy the plan. If you want to see God's view of what happened, you have to turn to the book of Revelation. Let me read it to you. You you don't need to turn there. John saw a great and wonderful sign appearing in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon red to indicate his murderous character. That's the one that our Lord describes as a murderer and a liar. With seven heads, that's an indication of his intelligence. Ten horns, a suggestion of his power. Seven crowns, indicating his authority. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky. That's uh, apparently a symbolic allusion to the fall of the angels, those that he swept with them and flung to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. That's why I say that uh, that 
tiny manger was the center of the universe. The demons gathered to destroy the child. They've been attempting to do that throughout all of history. And now is the crucial moment when the woman was about to give birth, and she did. She gave birth, she gave birth to a child, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Uh, Satan was foiled by the successful completion of our Lord's messianic uh, mission. That's uh, what this passage means uh, symbolically. Here's this little child, this vulnerable little child, who could have been destroyed in a moment. And the father protected him from the combined efforts of all demonic authorities to try to destroy him. Uh, Just as an aside, this is a wonderful reminder that our safety and the safety of our children rests in our being in the center of God's will. We cannot protect our children. We cannot protect our own lives. We're all very fragile and very vulnerable. Our best protection is found in the center of God's will. And in this case, all evil forces on the face of the earth were concentrated on this one place to try to destroy God's plan to bring salvation to the world. And Satan was, was foiled. The child was born and protected, and he completed his, uh, his messianic uh, mission. This is the answer to all the myths of all time. This is not a myth. This is history. But uh, this is the answer to the myths that have been made from the very beginning of of history, those uh, those stories of, of Greek gods becoming man, inhabiting human flesh, are nothing more than the hopes and desires and dreams and longing of all time for that moment when a holy thing would inhabit human flesh. And uh, they stem not from a vacuum, but from the promise that was given to uh, to Eve when when the world was plunged into into sin. God promised Eve that she would someday give birth to the one who would, who would set things right. And apparently it was intimated in that promise that it would be God himself who would inhabit human flesh. Because in Genesis 4, right after uh, she was given that promise, when Cain was born, Eve said, I have gotten a man, the Lord. Literally, the way the Hebrew text puts it. She thought that Cain was God himself in human flesh. He was not, of course. He was, he was a fallen human uh, being, uh, like every other human being that was born from that time until our Lord came. Nevertheless, that hope was implanted in human hearts that someday God would inhabit human flesh and he would bring peace and tranquility. He'd set things right. He'd comfort hearts. And he'd, he'd heal the brokenness of of, of our lives. And it happened. It really happened. It's a fact. It's not fiction. It's not a myth. As Luke records it, it happened. And these, these are the things that we need to put into our minds and, and, and ponder. Now, uh, the next thing we're told is that there were shepherds living out in the, in the fields nearby. And it's to these shepherds that the angels appeared. I think I've mentioned before in a, in a prior Christmas message that Herod himself had, had built a palace on top of a flat-topped mountain just to the south of, of Bethlehem, perhaps in the hopes that it was in that place that Messiah would be born. He knew the Old Testament scriptures, but, 
but uh, that was not the place. Our Lord bypassed Herod's palace, and he was born in a cave. And the angels bypassed Herod's palace. The uh, revelation was not given to Caesar Augustus or to Quirinius or to Herod or to the clergy up in, uh, in Jerusalem. The revelation was given to these, uh, these shepherds. I've mentioned before that we, we have a totally erroneous concept of what shepherds would li- were like. We've sanitized uh, our, uh, our vision of, uh, of shepherds. Uh, really, they're, they're a tough bunch of, of men, more like uh, Waihee County Cowboys than, uh, than the version of shepherds that we normally see portrayed in Sunday school uh, productions. Tough, rugged uh, men, the unlikeliest sort of people to whom... The Lord would reveal himself, but that's the kind God goes for. It's always been that way. He's always been interested in those that, that, that seem to be the most lost. He goes after a lost sheep and, and tracks them down. Now, there was a time, for example, in our Lord's life when he went to Nazareth, to his own hometown, and went into a synagogue to teach. And uh, what he saw there was cynicism. They said to him, do here what you've done elsewhere. In other words, prove yourself. And they met uh, his ministry with uh, unbelief, and so he went off to Phoenicia, the unlikeliest place in the world. The Phoenicians were the inheritors of the Canaanite religion, and and he, he made contact with a Phoenician woman there who seemed to be farthest away from the truth. Or you can think of the Samaritan woman, this uh, semi-pagan woman who had going through one husband after another and finally given up legitimatizing the relationship. Uh, or you can uh, think of uh, numerous other instances, the, uh, the prediction in, uh, of Micah's that uh, he would assemble the lame and gather the outcasts and those that have been afflicted were, were realized here in the shepherd's field when he appeared uh, to, these, uh, to these men. I read a few weeks ago uh, a short biography of John Newton. Uh, we know him best, perhaps, from Amazing Grace, that hymn that, that we sing here in church, but which has been popularized now to the point where it's sung uh, fairly regularly. And I often wonder if people really pay attention to the words. What you may not realize is that John Newton came out of a terribly depraved, background. Uh, he was a slave trader, owned a, owned a slave ship. His mother was a, was a believer. And when he was a child, she sang to him. She taught him, as Newton himself said, as he looked back on his life, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. She implanted a great deal of truth in his mind. But when he was seven, she died. And he uh, uh, went for all the gusto from that, that point on. He really gave his life to wine, women, and, and song, literally. And uh, uh, when he was in his teens, joined the Royal Navy and then went over the hill and, and uh, ended up as himself a slave to, uh, uh, to a shipmaster in West Africa. And he served two terrible years there. They, they almost starved him to death. And finally he escaped and became the master of his own ship. And for years... He carried slaves back and uh, forth from Africa to, uh, uh, to England. And uh, he says of himself, How industriously I served Satan. 
I was one of his active agents, and had my influence been equal to my wishes, I would have carried all the human race with me. A common drunkard to a profligate is a petty center to what I was. I had the ambition of a Caesar or an Alexander. I wanted to rank in wickedness among the foremost of the human race. Uh, he said, my whole life when awake was a course of the most horrid impiety and profaneness. I know not that I have ever met so daring a blasphemer, not content with common oaths and imprecations I daily invented new ones. Uh, he, he alarmed even the hardened seamen that he, that he served with. But one day, in the midst of a violent storm, when the ship was about to go down, he suddenly exclaimed, if nothing could be done, the Lord have mercy upon us. And uh, he went back to his cabin, thought about what he had said and what it meant. He thought, as he put it, that he didn't believe in God at all, but somehow he realized there in the middle of the storm, God had addressed him. And after that, gradually, his life changed. I, who was a willing slave of every evil, possessed with a legion of unclean spirits, have been spared and saved and changed. To stand as a monument, a monument of God's almighty power forever. So yeah, that's why he wrote Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. I once was lost, but now I am found. See? He didn't say he found God. God found him through that storm. And in that cry for God's mercy, uh, God extended mercy to him. And a few weeks before he died, Newton said to... Uh, uh, William Wilberforce, who became his uh, friend and with whom he was associated in, in eradicating slavery from the British Isles. A few weeks before he died, Newton said uh, to Wilberforce, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. I am a great Savior, and Christ, or pardon me, I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Now that's, uh, that's uh, what that Christmas story means. That little baby in the manger is a great Savior. And he came because we are great sinners. And, and he's seeking the likes of us, the down and the out and the outlandish and uh, the outcasts and the least likely of people. It doesn't make any difference what we've been or what we've said or what we've done. That baby is our, uh, is our Savior. And uh, what those shepherds did was to go looking for the baby. The, uh, the angel uh, gave them a clue. It said, this will be the sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in strips of cloth and, and lying in a feed trough. Now, they knew that there were no feed troughs in the spas and resorts and uh, palaces of Bethlehem. Bethlehem was the place where the rich and the famous uh, gathered. There was a great deal of affluence there in, in Jesus' day. And uh, these angels, uh, these shepherds knew that they, were, they probably wouldn't find any feed troughs in those locations. So they went looking in the caves and that, uh, that they're under the, the ground there in, in Bethlehem until they finally found that baby. And we're told that when they had seen him, verse 17, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. There's such wonderful simplicity in all of that. You know, there is that, that Christmas carol that we sing. It says, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Uh, everything about us is concentrated 
in that in that one thing. Say all of our longings, all of our dreams, all of our aspirations, all of our yearnings, all of our hopes, all of our fears are concentrated in that in that one thing, that that baby that was there in in the manger. Everything is met in in him, in centering on him, in believing on him, in trusting him, in relying on him, in listening to his words, in doing what he asks us to do, in following him. You see, it's all right there. And then the only reasonable response to that is to go tell somebody. Go share it with someone else. I can't think of of, of anything that will bring more meaning back into Christmas than the to go share it with other outcasts like us and, and people that desperately need to need to hear this message. You know, the Lord, uh, the, the world out there, the secular world, feels that they have no need of, of God and no need of the church, and they don't feel that they're spiritual beings at all. And, uh, the answer for them is to be in control. Uh, if we're not in control, then we have to get in control. And if we're not uh, competent and efficient, then we'll find someone who is competent and efficient. And the tendency is to look for competency among professionals, therapists and others. And, and we tend to get intimidated by that because we, we feel marginal and we feel that we don't really have anything important to say. And our message is so simple that no one's going to uh, really take us seriously. But uh, uh, let, let, let me tell you, the, the God of patience is out there touching the lives of people that, that we know. And underneath that apparent indifference, there is a, a lot of isolation and, and loneliness. There are broken relationships. There's so much hurt and pain and so much fear of, of death. Uh, I don't know how many of you saw the article in the Statesman this last week about uh, the run on red wine. Did any of you see that? Interesting. I've long uh, been convinced that uh, fear of death drives the marketplace, uh, along with greed and uh, pride. But uh, uh, some research in France has demonstrated that the French have a much lower incident of, of heart disease than we do, and they have determined that it's the result of drinking red wine. It cleans the plaque off of the arteries. And so there's been a re- resurgence in uh, in the, in the purchase of red wine. Everybody's running down to buy red wine. Say, why? Well, they don't want to die. That's why. You see. It doesn't take a great deal of wisdom to see what, what's going on. And that, that fear of death and that fear of the future, uh, the, the breakup of our relationships that mean so much to us, our loan, that's all under the surface. It's all there, you see. And they don't, uh, they don't believe God is the answer. But when they see God incarnate, someone like you and, and me, and, and we say what John Newton says, I just have two things to say. I'm a very great sinner, but I have a very great Savior. Then they will come to know this one that the shepherds found, and their lives will be changed as well. So if you want to put some meaning into your, your Christmas, let me uh, just ask you to do what Mary did. Take very seriously these words. It really happened. It's not a myth. It's not a once upon a time story. It really did happen. Our Lord was born as a little baby. He was placed in that feed trough. That was the Savior 
of the world, and he exists today as the Savior of the world. He's the one that gives meaning to this season. And, uh, you know, actually, that's why he is uh, overlooked. Uh, That's why you don't find too many crushes around town. There there is a conspiracy. There is something going on. It's not the merchants. it's, It's this dragon behind the scenes who's still trying to take the baby out of Christmas. Uh, G.K. Chesterton tells about a statue in his hometown in, in England of uh, Mary and the child. And uh, uh, some Protestants in town were concerned about the Madonna and child. And uh, they don't know who did it, but in, in the middle of the night, someone uh, took a hammer and a chisel and chiseled away the baby so that only, the Mary, only Mary was left. And Chesterton made the observation that the only reason they didn't chisel Mary away and not the baby is that the baby would be, would be suspended in thin air. But uh, nevertheless, uh, the baby was chiseled away. And that's exactly what's happening today. The baby's being chiseled away. He's not taken seriously. But we need to take the baby very, very seriously. That's the center of the story. There is no Christmas apart from the the baby. And then we need to take advantage of the times. As Paul says, redeem the time because the days are evil. Buy up these opportunities when people are, are, are sinking into their loneliness and their despair. And tell them about this Savior who's come. Well, let's uh, let's pray. Would you stand with me, please?